Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and the shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting professions. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hi, John. Who's our first guest this week? Our first guests are the chief executive officer and two co-founders of Pohala Brewery in Tallinn, Estonia. Founded in 2011 by four Estonian beer enthusiasts and home brewers, the brewery quickly gained popularity for its Baltic porters and barrel-aged beers. They quickly outgrew their original space and in 2018 quadrupled their brewing capacity in a new location in the historic shipyard area of Tallinn. Now distributed in over 30 markets, they are brewing beers they love for legions of devoted fans in Estonia and beyond. Welcome to the Beer Hour. Ivar Aus and Peter Kik and Chris Plinken. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today and uh, agreeing to be on the show. It is a pleasure to see you guys again, Peter. It's, uh, it's been a while, but uh, good to see your face again. I know I think the last time you were here in Miami was uh, Wakefest 2020. But it's, uh, it's very good to have you guys on. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So how did, you guys, how did you guys meet your three co-founders in Teets and in Gren? I mean, uh, we were all, our friendship was much based on a, on a culinary interest. You know, we, either we dined together, cooked together, or went to travel. And when the craft beer started to, you know, gather, you know, ground in Europe, we really took interest in early on and, and decided to take, you know, you know, we started as a hobby, but very quickly we realized that how expensive the home brewing equipment is. Instead of that, we started decided to okay, let's open a brewery and make a business out of it. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, as we you know got on with the idea, we decided to go on visit very early Brewdog, and and managed to get the internship there for a week in actually 2012, and wow. that's how we met with Chris at Brewdog, who had worked there for for two years. So you guys, act, you guys actually did an internship at Brewdog. Yeah, me and Gren, one of the co-founders, other co-founders, we, we we spent a week at Brewdog, at their original Fraserburg Brewery. Oh, oh, in Fraserburg. Okay. Yeah. Wow. wow. So, who's like out of the four of you guys? Whose idea was it to open a brewery? I mean, uh, the one who told it out uh, loud was N. You know, but uh, you know, we were like really the, the most close culinary buddies. So you know. He started to discuss with me, and uh, he was working uh, as a CEO of a big corporation back then. And you know, and uh, I, it was uh, like a you know sparkle between us, you know. And then we started to you know add on friends because, the, as we know, starting a brewery is not cheap, and you know we wanted to you know use as much as own capital as possible. Of course, you know not till the very end, but uh, still, we we managed off pretty well, and we're still independent. What what was the craft beer scene like around that time in Estonia when you guys started talking about opening a brewery? I mean, Chris moved in Estonia in very early days. Actually, I know exact date, 8th of March 2013, and he visited <laughs> us in 2012 already. 12. Right. So I think, you know, he's, he's fair to take over and, and explain the scene for yourself. Okay. <laughs> well, speaking like as an outsider, then craft beer, Estonia to me, it was somewhere that didn't have much of its own craft beer scene. You know, we had the usual, we had the imports, we had Mikkeler, we had Brewdog, we had right. Tull, um, and those were sort of the big ones. And then you had the, some traditional British beers as well. But there wasn't really anything except for, like, island uh, homebrew, like Sati style, you know, like okay. raw, old-school beers. So, I mean, that, I think, was part of the reason why we kind of, like, hit that it was such a good idea was because, you know, it was one of the few places left in uh, in Europe where there's you know, you can kind of build a, a culture up from the ground up, you know, because it was a great culinary uh, nation, but. Right. So they, so basically you're telling me at this time back then there were no craft breweries. It was just all imports basically. Yes. Yeah. There were three, three, three dominantly big brewers. One are bankrupted now, you know, there's only two big lets and then now it's the rest of the craft scene. But uh, when we, when we started and uh, released the first beer in 2013, 
there were like in six months, there were like five brewers opened in a row. Mm -hmm. So this, the scene kind of exploded. You wow. know, at some point there was like, it's a country of 1.3 million people, you know, I, I mean, it's one part of Miami. So it's, uh, <laughs> it was, it was a big high number per cap capita of, of yeah. brewers. Now it's a little bit slowed down and some have closed, but it's still a very vibrant scene. And one thing I wanted to say is like why craft beer really took on, uh, took on the popularity is also that it followed up with an amazing home brewing scene because Estonians have been always like, you know, doing their own home wine or jams, preserving mushrooms, you know, all the knowledge of this, you know, preservation has been, you know, kept and, uh, you know, even better. So to this day, you know, the, all the home brewing scene is very active and, you know, the, that's also, I think, you know, it's, has carried the boat for us all. Nice. Today it's, it's very mainstream, I would say, the craft beer. How, how did you guys go about financing the opening of the original brewery? The, I mean, the, one of the co-founders, Teet, you know, his background is in IT. Ah, okay. And uh, he was our, he was our uh, you know, we all had like a equal shares, but, you know, he was came in with, a, we included in the project a little later, you know, when we when we were planning the brewery and, and he entered with our first, as a first investor. And uh, on the second wave of the, of the expansion, we we're rushing ahead of the story a bit, but then we used again, uh, like a, not, not, not the crowdfunding, but we had like a, Oh, this is, I'm actually going into Ivar's territory now. It's like you're trying to talk about how we actually got this new place going. Well, I joined a, a, a year ago, so I don't know exactly what happened between people, but what we really tried to do is when all the others, not all, the, but let's say the majority, finance their growth through crowdfunding or whatnot, so we really tried to stay independent. We have a, um, about, let's say, 20 investors. Okay. And... Uh, Every expansion we've done, we've kept it within those investors, and uh, that's kind of the the route we've taken and want to stay stay on. So we don't plan to do any crowdfunding initiatives. And they've been good investors; they believe in us, and then we've uh, you know supported their their trust in us. So that works out. So it's, people with go ahead entrepreneur backgrounds and with really big interest in beer. So it's like everybody knows that this game is not like you know getting a big back buck big and fast but it's just a pure love for, for beer you know so would you say instead of like obviously like the crowdfunding you would be more equity based that you did the capital raising through through the 20 investors then we, we, we started we, we opened the project at the at two-year convertible loan ah, uh, with ah, okay. an opportunity to turn into the uh, shares and uh, we initially got uh, 21 convert you know loans and only one investor decided to return the loan, not to become a uh, shareholder. The, you know, so the very high rate of uh, turning into a partner. So I've got a question, obviously, about Estonia itself. You guys, uh, I know the, the culinary background is very rich. Does Estonia have a beer style that they signify with? You know, because obviously in, in the Czech, it's Czech pills. I mean... Ireland is Irish stout. I mean, like, what is it with Estonia that they really is like, would you say be the, the beer style they signify with? For us, it would definitely be Baltic Porter, 100%. Uh, okay. it's, it's a style that, uh, you know, you can go back as far as you want until the records get burnt. But uh, we're probably <laughs> one of the first places in the world to have brewed it, if not like one of them, if not the first. And that was the very first beer that we ever released was, uh, was uh, our Imperial Baltic Porter. Because, I mean, it also worked really, really well for us because uh, – what is the polar opposite to a pale macro lager is a, uh, a nine and a half uh, ABV Baltic torture <laughs> yes. black at night. <laughs> yes. So. I, I, I mean, we can talk about like in, in 2013, before you guys actually opened the original brewery, you released Ul, the Imperial Baltic Porter. Um, can, can you describe this beer? You just said it was nine and a half percent, but can you describe it to our listeners and tell us like why you think it became so popular? Yeah, so so uh, nowadays it's a ten and a half percent Imperial Baltic Porter. Oh, we bumped, uh, bumped it up. <laughs> we, 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 we turned it up a little bit. You know, when we brewed it ourselves, then we thought we can go wild now. Um, That's so, awesome. uh, so it pours sort of like silky dark black, nice sort of uh, dark brown, fluffy little head on there, and uh, it, it's not a beer that you can see through. It's not like it's uh, opaque. It's not like uh, it's not like a dark brown or anything. It is a pitch black, pitch black beer. You're going to get, uh, it, 
in aroma, you get like hints of like dried fruits, slight bits of like vinous, uh, almost cognac sort of uh, character. Um, and then like mouthfeel is uh, mouthfeel is on the is on the is on the thicker on the heavier side uh, because again it's like it's a beer that is what's what is it they always say about Guinness a meal in the glass which you know it's oh. not really correct but uh, with this then I think it is it is the case it's it's very filling it's but very drinkable like we we tone the we tone the bitterness so that it's got enough to keep keep it kind of balanced and uh, and enjoyable but not so that it's like you know that you're drinking it and it's punishing you for drinking it it's it's okay. it's perfect like fireplace sipper which may not go down too well in uh, in, in in florida but uh well, over here we do a lot of nights like that uh, i i'll bounce back against that because as we found out being here for eight years now that people in florida will drink stouts no matter the season whether it's 95 degrees outside yeah. or or 65 degrees so they love big Absolutely. alcoholic dark beers <laughs> so we also we also put out a, a baltic porter in, I, I, in may right nine and a half percent right we mm. did a baltic porter in may that was nine and a half percent but i i love baltic porters so i mean it's it's more up my style i was kind of gonna get a little beer nerdy with you and ask you has the baltic porter scene kind of gone like the u.s imperial adjunct stout scene to where they need to be thicker 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 like you know the the finishing gravity needs to be you know 12 13 14 plato or is it has it stayed to the traditional roots of finishing out like where like you know six seven plato i would say that it's mostly stayed around about there um at least in estonia we could talk like the different regions around here and their own perspectives on baltic portrait we, we have a constant running feud slash joke with our friends in uh, Poland about that. Um, but I mean, probably it's just because we brewed a different style back in the day, but, but yeah, we, we've tended to stick around, uh, stick around like six, seven, somewhere like that. Oh, nice. Um, the, the, we, we have occasionally played around with uh, pushing it up, but in my opinion, it kind of doesn't like, it doesn't really reflect the style because at that point, then you might as well just sort of, uh, like, um, you might as well reach out for one of those adjunct Imperial stouts. There's, there's nothing wrong with them. So, uh, you know, I feel like blurring those two styles of the Baltic Porter, like into the adjunct style, is kind of not the way that we want to go anyway. And, and I'm not going to say bastardize, but you guys haven't jumped in the realm of throwing adjuncts into the Baltic Porter because, I mean, up in Boston, uh, you have uh, what is it, Jack's Abbey, who they never did. I mean, they were a logger house, so of course, for their dark beer, they did Baltic Porters, but they went to the realm of peanut butter jelly you know coconut blah 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 i mean you know and barrel aging which is amazing just a straight up barrel aged baltic porter is amazing but they did run down that rabbit hole of throwing anything and everything in the baltic porters i mean what is your guys's feel on that i mean for one i'm just happy to see that other people are like pursuing the baltic porter style because i mean when we did it like actually in a way we took a bit of inspiration from from you guys, uh, from from Cigar City, you know, right? Because I mean, yep. that was one of the few Baltic porters that was around still back then. Color your book. Yeah. So, yep. so on one hand, I'm just happy to see that people are like knowing that the style exists. Yes. Um, and I mean, I do feel that it lends itself very well to things going in there. But like when we're doing it, then it's more in the realm of uh, of, of other things. You know, it might be like black currents. It might be uh, we we did one last year for Baltic, this year for Baltic Quarter Day with uh, Palo Santo Wood. Ooh. Um, okay. Cool. But. Uh, so I, I don't feel that it necessarily does the style particular justice because then you have to modify the style quite a bit to make an adjunct like like that sort of peanut butter and that uh, work. Okay, I, I would say. Okay. Um, but in terms of adding flavorings to Baltic Porter, why, why shouldn't it join the uh, join the, <laughs> yeah. the rest of the world? Right. Why? Why not? I, I think it's a perfect canvas for that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I do want to ask, like, can you guys? I mean, obviously, I have not been to Estonia. I don't. I mean, and describe for our listeners. Can you describe? Talon's like Nome district, the the neighborhood in which you first opened in 2014. Oh, the Nome, the, the first brewery actually. When we searched for the location, uh, one of the major aspects for us was water. So we we found home uh, like almost 10 k's or 10 kilometers out of city center, which is for the Tallinn term is like really far away. Right. Uh, we, we found home in an old chemical factory that had closed. Uh, like 10, 15 years earlier, but they had amazing well still operating. So ah. we got our water like 71 meters down. So we didn't have to modify much, you know. It was a very, very good water. And, uh, I mean, the, the space was good, the water was good, so that's why we moved uh, 
to this uh, very remote location, which was beautiful because we were basically surrounded by forest, ah. which actually got the inspiration for our forest series, which we have. This is where we use a lot of forest ingredients that is Estonia is known for. I mentioned that people have kept the knowledge how to preserve stuff. They also know what what uh, grows in the forest. What is like the forest has is like an ancient pharmacy for Estonia. Yes. You know, we yeah. know our herbs. Uh, for the country is forest. It's over fifty percent. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. I I did not know that. I mean, how how difficult was it to open a business like yours in Tallinn, Estonia, where there are a lot of uh, regulations? In, in Estonia, it's, it's super easy to open a company. I mean, you can do it like a basically like a juridical point of view. You can do it online in fifteen minutes, and you are a business <laughs> owner. But, and secondly, Estonia is very entrepreneurial, spirited country. So first of all, you know, we have our that spirit ourselves, and. Uh, and also, people are curious to try new stuff. So when the craft beer was, you know, thrown out there, the the, the scene really, you know, took off really quickly. And 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 also simultaneously, you know, we started to export because we knew that the market would be 1.3 million people. We have to, you know, look abroad. Right. And luckily, you know, good for us, you know, the people started to take interest in dark beers and the barrel aging that we continue to experiment and and so on. We brew all variety of beers, but we're known mostly for our dark beers and, and especially also the barrel-aged beers that are called cellar series. I mean, that's that's probably my favorite anyway. So <laughs> you wouldn't have to do much convincing for me to come drink your beers. I mean, dark beers and barrel-aged beers, I'm good. Um, I do. What, Chris, like what was that initial brewing setup size that you guys had? Like, like how, many yeah. hect- how many hectoliters were you guys doing? So the uh, the original one out in Numa that was uh, that was an American system, Premier Stainless. So oh, okay. it would be ten barrels, ten U.S. barrels, okay. uh, brew pub style system to try and like make the most of the space we had. Uh, and I mean, we were uh, we were cranking cranking double brews out uh, almost every day until we couldn't fit more fermenters inside the building. So uh, <laughs> how, how much I want to say that we were, yeah. how, much, how much capacity were you guys brewing at that time? Uh, I want to say that we were around about three-ish thousand hectoliters per year, um, so what, like two and a half thousand barrels or something. Yeah, I was going to say about twenty-five hundred barrels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. that's that's pretty awesome, though. For for like, and we're talking around what two thousand thirteen, and it just kind of keeps growing from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. All the way through to all the way through up to, to twenty eighteen. Right. We, we shut the plate down in two thousand nineteen. Right. Shut right. shut the doors after the last barrels got emptied, basically. Nothing else was happening there until then. The last beer we packaged was good, called as good as it gets. <laughs> well, of course, proper send-off beer for that place. <laughs> so I've actually got a question for Ivar. So you actually joined Puhala like just over a year ago. Previously, you worked for a company that I'm very familiar with here in Miami, Bacardi. How have you leveraged your experience in the spirits industry in your new role as CEO of a beer company? Well, it's, you know, one of the reasons to, to take, take on this role was, you know, I've been in the wine business, uh, then the spirits business. That was a, a new learning curve for me. So there's certainly some overlap in terms of how the trade works, but uh, it's, it's quite a different ballgame in that sense. So, you know, this, this scene is, is, let's say, it's way less corporate. Okay. The, the things are uh, done kind of like more in a, in a team spirit kind of a way. Okay. And... Uh, you know, it's just you don't have the team supporting you. I mean, the team of like hundred specialists behind you supporting things. So you have to get to know all the little details, uh, which which is has been very interesting. And and uh, yeah, I've enjoyed it a lot. So there's, I, I'd say like there's some that you bring on, but it's a different scene. Ah, so I mean, according to your website, you guys are distributed in over thirty markets across Europe and around the world. What is your distribution plan moving forward, and are there new markets that you would like to break into? I mean, I mean, we have a just across our screen, we have a world map, you know, and we are actually, you know, yeah, represented the most of the main craft beer markets around the world, whether it be in Asia or, or in uh, in America. Uh, so at the moment, we're not really looking for new markets, but working closely with the ones we have. This, the export model has always been like dark and sour beer based, which you know, you know, as you know, can take the beating on the road. Right. And and uh, the more fresher the, the beer we're brewing right now, the the fresh hop lager, that that will be distributed only in surrounding countries. You know, so we are we are 
successful at our home market. Finland is just like a 60 miles up north from us. So this is our basically second home market, uh-huh. very close language-wise as well. So it's uh, we're aware. I mean, we're not sending container of uh, IPA to America. That would be like bringing <laughs> sand to the beach. You know? Right. But we have found our niche in the beer world, you know, with the, with our dark beer and also the the... We have really taken on the imperial sour side, you know, also taken a lot of inspiration from Florida, as Chris mentioned before. Nice. So in 2018, you guys obviously left the old facility and moved to a new facility in historic Noblesner shipyard area by the sea in North Tallinn, which I think I'm looking at now here on the screen behind behind you guys. Can you tell us, like, how big is this new facility? And are there any new beer offerings that you now offer with the new facility or what else is new with the new facility? Uh, yeah, so uh, so in terms of um, in terms of brewing, then we, we scaled up for a multitude of reasons, capacity and consistency. So our system now is uh, is around about uh, around about fifty hectoliters or so for a vessel. It's a German one, um, and uh, and we're continuing to to brew all manner of beers. We're eventually going to have uh, capacity in here for uh, around about thirty thousand hectoliters a year. Wow. Um, decent jump from uh, yeah. from uh, from what we had. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, basically, the um, up here, what we what we got, what we have not had in the previous brewery is uh, we've got a tap room. Ah. Um, because before we were in a suburb uh, where we had to get people uh, get people out there, um, right. and nowadays people come to us, which is uh, which is great. So uh, so yeah, that also means that like some of the beer styles that we're doing here that we weren't doing are things like lagers, they're things like hazy IPAs because uh-huh. we can we can keep a closer eye on the freshness. And also because of the water, you know, out in the suburbs, water was great for the dark beers, but uh, not but, so great uh, for those other here, styles. Yeah, exactly. So we thought we're not going to even try them until we're like we're happy with everything that we've got going on here. Um, dip our feet in when we know we're confident about it all. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll jump, jump in with this. Uh, we also have a, a quality control lab here. So ah. I mean, this something that's very important for us. It's not, you know, we don't even know if any any of the small breweries does have it. I don't think so. Uh, plus, the thing with the tap room, the biggest tap room, or again, I think in the Baltics, uh, it's it's in really in the center. That is a is a really old historic area that's been refurbished, so let's say rebuilt. Right. And uh, all the kind of hap- everything that's happening in the in the city that is interesting to let's say the younger generation is happening here so nice. we have a lot of people coming in through the tap room it's texas barbecue style and then it's uh-huh. kind of makes it coming visiting the the, the brewery is kind of like the whole experience because you can also do tours of the brewery and everything is it brings it what we want to do is bring people closer to the craft scene we have in a sauna a in the brewery and also a sauna yes Ah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we are not a country, you know. This is not—it's not like uh, some gimmick, but you know, this is something that we really regularly do, even uh, here in the house. This is a sauna. You know, we have saunas in our apartments and, and uh, the cottages. <laughs> it's something that we cannot just go by. You know, it's like a pool in Florida. You know, when so I you have it. to have a sauna. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, did I did I pick up that you guys also do food in the tap room as well? Did you say yeah. Texas barbecue? Yeah, true that. Oh, okay. I mean, we when we started to open the tap room, then uh, it was actually a happy coincidence that I met uh, like a Texas consultant, a barbecue consultant that is actually helping. Uh, I met him in China actually, and wow. he was helping to set up the Jingay guys with their tap room in Beijing. Oh. And uh, we were just like thinking what direction to take here, and and you know having tasted his meat, you know it was like, you know turned man, and we had a little trip in in uh, Texas for ten days, you know. And uh, at the moment, we have a chef from uh, Canada, nice. and our, our and the brisket actually comes from from America. Ooh, and Brian B. I mean, I actually, and, uh, I I think that that's an actual perfect pairing. I mean, since like a majority of your focus is on Baltic porters and barrel aged beers, I think Texas barbecue really kind of goes hand in hand with those those beer styles. So I think it's a great choice. You can find, and we have twenty four taps. I think oh. around one hundred fifty seats. Big terrace outside, so it's it's a really beautiful and uh, restaurant with great ambience. You know, very high ceilings, a lot of plants, open kitchen. So nice. Actually, I invite all the listeners to, to come check us out. You know, we have absolutely. 15 taxi ride from the airport. Oh, and the whole town is 20 minute walk, so Tallinn is very accessible by by foot. Well, and it's, it's unique, connected, it, uh, great city. 
I mean, they should definitely come check you out, especially when you have your web, uh, like your festival coming up in May of next year. So, I mean, I'm sure the weather's going to be perfect and Texas style barbecue, dark beers, lagers, hazy IPAs, and you know, I mean, like you said, you're only t- ten minutes from uh, <laughs> from the airport, so it should be an excellent time. So, as always, like what I do on the show is the last question is, what's next for you guys? What's what's on the schedule next? Okay, uh, we have quite extensive plans, which you know I will not disclose all of them. Okay. But, uh, our aim, our let's say the simplest terms, uh, is that we want to attract more people to the craft scene because historically in Estonia it's quite a, a, a niche thing. Still, it's growing fast. It's growing like thirty percent, forty percent a year. But still, the if you look at the let's say older beer markets in Europe. The craft beer market share is about 15%, 10 to 15. We are at 2 3%. So really, there's a whole capacity, like a lot of room to grow. So this is where we're aiming. And what we aim to do is kind of be a leader in, in, that, in that scene, uh, as we've been over the past 10 years. So to kind of continue, be kind of, you know, the, the show the way in, in, in that sense. Amazing. So we have like two strategies. One is like a domestic market that just even explained, but we keep offering our amazing parallel uh, beer and and our sour beers also that you know we wanna we wanna just, you know be part of that game and you know not not lose the fun part of, of the brewing you know like nice. so ideally when somebody sees Pohjola uh, they're gonna go oh Estonia or somebody or vice versa somebody says you know my friend is from Estonia oh I know Pohjola from Estonia so it's kind of like. This is what we're aiming for. Nice, nice. Well, I really want to thank you guys very much for joining the show today, and thank you for taking time out of your days to uh, to join us. And we look forward to having you guys at uh, Wakefest uh, 2023, which is in February, and then uh, obviously the return trip in May to see you guys in Estonia. But thank you. Absolutely. Most welcome, and thank you for having us. Thank, thank you, guys. You. Have a good day. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest founded Coyo Taco with Sven Lachman in 2015 in Miami's Wynwood Arts District. The fast casual concept, which features modern Mexican cuisine and includes a live DJ and speakeasy in the back, took off, just as the neighborhood around it did. In seven short years, Coyo Taco has expanded to nine locations in five countries. What's the secret to their runaway success? We're about to find out. Hint, it's all in the tortillas. Welcome to the Beer Hour. Alan Drummond, thank you very much for joining us today in the tap room here in the physical location. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been a while. I feel like uh, we kind of grew up in the neighborhood together here. <laughs> yes. I'm usually here on Tuesday for, for Wolf of Tacos, though. Ah, okay, okay. So where did you grow up? And, like, where did you go to school at? So I grew up in, in Mexico City, and um, all of my uh, early years of school were, were in Mexico City, in Coyoacan, but then I went to university in Switzerland. Oh, really? Wow. Okay, so that's, that's quite a jump from, uh, <laughs> from Mexico to, to Switzerland, for sure. And then what brought you back U.S. side here? So um, I, was in, I was working in the Middle East, um, and I was going to um, open a... I uh, was thinking of opening a taqueria in the Middle East, but unfortunately, I was there during the Arab Spring, and um, it was just not a good time uh, financially to, to do a business there. And um, I happened to come uh, for a concert. I came for the SS Coachella, and I was um, crashing on Sven's couch, who okay. was a friend at the time. And um, yeah, he just said, you know, if, why, why don't we do the, the taqueria here? So how did, how did you meet your business partner, Sven? So Sven, um, previously I was working at the Ritz-Carlton St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, and he was working there as well. So we were both working in the same hotel, oh, wow. and we just became friends. So did, did you study? Is that what you studied? Hospitality? Or? Yeah. Okay. Oh, so, so that was your first hospitality job then? Um, I was, I mean, I had hospitality jobs uh, earlier, but um, my, no, that was probably the second or third so what were you doing for the hotels at, the, at those times? Um, in those times, when I, when, I, when I worked with Sven, I was doing a corporate training for um, Ritz-Carlton. Um, so I was going through all the different departments, um, kind of learning um, everything. Oh, nice. I mean, you also have your time in the hotel. I was always back at the house, but 
my most recent stint at the Fountain Blue, I was a concierge. And the only reason why I got a job is because I spoke three languages fluently. That's it. I mean, it helps. It oh, helps. it really <laughs> does. <laughs> so were like either your parents in the restaurant business? Not at all. Um, my parents are academics. My father's a biologist. My mother's a psychologist. Um, it came, I came out of left field. (laughs) (laughs) Came out of left field on this one. I mean, but so both you and Sven had hospitality background, but neither of you had restaurant background though. Um, we had hospitality background, um, once we started working professionally, right? Neither of us came from, from hospitality background, but yes, I was, I, um, was working in hotels in Barcelona, in the States, in the Caribbean and the Middle East. But not as running a restaurant though. No, no. So like, so who came up with the idea to open a taqueria? Um, I think that individually we probably came up with it, you know, um, on our own. But, right. but my, my thought of, of opening a taqueria started when I was very young. Um, coming from Mexico City, it was always my dream to bring tacos to another part of the world. Right. And at, at the time, um, I, when I was working at the St. Regis in Abu Dhabi, um, uh. my plan was to bring taquerias to the Middle East. So I, I, I wanted to bring this, this um, chain from Mexico um, and yeah, it just happened when, it, when the Arab Spring happened. So it, it just happened to be very bad timing. So when did you and Sven meet Chef Scott Lindquist? So Sven and I were working on um, opening a taqueria here in Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sven at the time happened to be working at uh, Barton G. Um, oh, really? Okay. And, and Scott was the executive chef. And um, oh. Sven was on his way out, but he, he sees this new chef, and, and Scott starts putting his cookbooks up in his office, and he sees, you know, Mexican cuisine. He had, he had, he had made a, you know, a lot of different Mexican menus, and Sven was, you know, said to him, you know, I'm going to go on a limb here, but uh, I know I'm just leaving, but we're about to open a taqueria. Would, would you like to come work with us? Oh, really? So he was the executive chef at Barton G's. Barton G's and Versace Mansion and, and yeah. Oh, that whole group. Yeah, Oh, exactly. wow. Okay. <laughs> that's a big head there. Okay. So when did you decide that Wynwood was the section of Miami you wanted to stake your claim and put your first Coyo Taco in? And like what what kind of made you choose this place? Um actually it was it was it was a happy mistake. Um we first um when we first when Sven first pitched the idea and um, we were looking at a location in in South Beach. Right. Um, and um I think now looking back uh, great uh, thankfully um it had a, a very expensive uh, TI package. It was it was a very very expensive shot, so we looked for another location, and I think that was very very good luck because um, finding Winwood I think made made the difference to our success. How long you guys? How long has Winwood location been around now? It's been around for eight years now. So as long as we have. Exactly. Yeah. I remember so, opening at a similar time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember like when you guys first opened, we'd go there and. Eat lunch almost every, every day. day. <laughs> every day. <laughs> before the bowls. Right, Before, right, you know, right. when it was just the tacos. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, w- I mean, the happy mistake aside, I mean, what kind of, like, drew you guys here? Like, I mean, obviously, the, I mean, back eight years ago, this neighborhood was nothing what it is like now. I mean, it was a lot of grit and grime to me. Yeah. Well, what, what, what drew us here was the grit and grime. Um, I think that... Um, with Sven being in the music business, um, and he was DJing at uh, Wood Wood Tavern oh, really? at the time. Okay. So I think that, as you said, that it was a grimy neighborhood. But um, we, you know, we started seeing similar heads yeah. here, and and we started seeing that there was a late night crowd with it was only Grams and Wood at the time. But we saw that that you know would 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 bring the crowd of what what we do in Mexico, which is eat that third me- meal, which is you know. After dinner, so right, right, that late night, yeah. that late night meal, <laughs> of course. So, what is the concept behind Coyo Taco for those who may have not been to one yet? Yeah, so Coyo Taco, I mean, the name derives from uh, Coyoacan, which is the, the neighborhood that I'm from in Mexico City. So, it's in the south of Mexico City, it's um, a bohemian neighborhood. We, we kind of see the similarity with Wynwood um, to Coyoacan, it's also kind of you know, the art district. It's where Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera came from. It's where they would harbor a lot of, you know, political prisoners, Trotsky and, and whatnot. So it's, it became a very cultural neighborhood in Mexico. And we decided to, to call it Coyo, um, which is the kind of the, the slang for Coyoacan. 
And what we tried to do was recreate all the street food that you can find in Koyakan. So you walk around and you can find the, the corn on the cob, the esquites, or you can find the tacos al pastor, you can find the churros. So we were trying to emanate um, street food um, in one location. I mean, you guys also do uh, nopales? Yes. And hongos? Yes. I mean, you do a little bit of everything. Yes, that's something that, that is different than Mexico. So in Mexico City, you would go to specific taquerias for those tacos. And right. what, what, we, what we try to do was grab a little bit of everything and, and put it in one location. Nice, nice. Uh, if, if you ask me like about a great sandwich, I'm always going to talk about the bread first. Always bread makes the big difference. How important are the hand-pressed corn tortillas been to the success of Coyo? Yes, just like you said with the sandwich, I would say that... Um, in, 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 a, in a taco, the, the, the tortilla is, is the most essential thing. Um, and I think what really separates us from, from kind of what's been tried here before is, is the fact that I'm from Mexico and the fact that Scott has such extensive experience in Mexico. Um, we are using um, a nixtamal, which is from Mexico, with, a, with our particular blend, with Maseca. So the fact that we're, we're bringing the nixtamal from Mexico, I think, makes, the, makes a difference in the taste of the taco. What is it about the nixtamal that enhances the flavor of the tortillas i think that it, it it's a i personally i think that it's it, it maintains the freshness so people don't like to use it because you know come two days um it's it's rendered useless right. but i think that the fact that um the fact that it's just been it's it hasn't been touched by monsanto it's something that it's you know it's been cultured for a lot of time in mexico right i believe that it just um it keeps its its french its freshness Nice. The live DJ element seems like it would have been a lot of extra work. I mean, if you think about it, why is it important to the Koyo Taco experience and who finds and schedules these DJs? Because like in Koyo Taco, the one you've had here, you actually have a speakeasy per se in the back. And that's where the DJ and, and the music started, right? Correct. And, and it, it, it was paramount to our business. Um, so um, it, it's very, very important because as, as people say, we're not viewed as a restaurant. I think we're um, what, what makes it essentially different is the fact that we're doing all this programming in the back. Right. Um, surprising, there's still a very uh, big number of, of customers that come to Koyo and have no idea that there's a back room. You know, we, um, but all of that scheduling is done by my partner, Sven. So since Sven is in that music world, uh, we were able to, eight years ago, not stick to one kind of genre. So, you know, on Mondays, we have Deep House with Oscar G on Tuesdays. Oh, wow. We have a Walshy Fire for Rum and Bass. On Wednesdays, we have what they've called the, the best reggae night in the country. So every, you know, on Sundays, we have R&B. So you have a rotational. It's a rotational, but it sticks the same. And we've been very fortunate that in eight years, we still have the same resident DJs um, filling the night uh, for, for eight years in a row. That's crazy. You got Oscar G. Yes. <laughs> he was my childhood hero. That's so. a bit, yeah. I, I mean, I, I know who Oscar G is, and that's an amazing set for sure. Not only is it kind of a club, but I mean, it's really a tequila bar in the back, right? Yeah, it's a mezcal bar. So oh, it's a mezcal. Yes, and at the time when I was when we were you know when I was pitching the idea of the mezcal, uh, some of my partners were a little nervous because you know this was still early days in 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 right. Florida. Mezcal wasn't really at that time that hot yet. No, I'm I'm pretty sure we were the first mezcaleria yeah. in in Miami, and it was a bit of a learning curve. Um, so obviously tequila is there. I'm, tequila for me is. A type of mezcal, okay. The way champagne is a wine, okay. Um, but I think the mezcal offering um, was a risky endeavor, um, right. but you know it paid off. Come today, you know everyone has mezcal. Well, right. I mean, every celebrity on the planet is backing a tequila or mezcal. George Clooney and Casamigos and, and everything. Mm. But why mezcal over? I mean, you said tequila is like a type of mezcal. Agreed, but. Mezcal speaks to you more, per se, than tequila itself? Oh, a thousand percent. Um, my family is originally from Oaxaca. Oh, okay. And um, right. mezcal, you know, is, is, is so much more complex. It's much more diverse. Yes. Um, you have, you know, 160 agaves. Um, and unfortunately, I think, well, to, to me, right, this is my opinion, but tequila, it really blew up um, because of uh, margaritas yes, and palomas. Yes, yes, yes. And... Um, 
unfortunately, big brands came into tequila, and, and there used to be, you know, 13 different agaves, but we, we homogenized them into the Blue Weber. It just became one agave. And personally, to me, it's kind of a very simple flavor profile, and there's not a lot of complexity. Right. With agaves from mezcal, you've got, you know, agaves that are cultivated, that are natural, that are up in the mountains, that are right. down. So I just think you get a lot more complexity. Right, you get the high elevation versus low elevation. I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's like wine almost in a sense. And it's a more ancestral process. Um, it, the money's kept more in Mexico. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, you're using this, wood, this kind of stone tahona. Right. There's more complexity to it. And I think it, you can tell in, in the taste. So what's your go-to mezcal? My go-to mezcal day-to-day is Union. Okay. Um, which is a friend of mine that owns it. But they really do a good job of keeping the money in Oaxaca. Okay. And um, having the Oaxacans own the land. They own the bottling and everything. They just kind of buy the juice. So it's also for kind of, you know, what they're doing for the industry. Um, that would be my day-to-day. Nice. Nice, man. So 10 locations, five countries, and just eight years. Beyond the original location, basically half a block from, from here in, in Wynwood, you got locations in Brickell, Coral Gables, Fort Lauderdale, South Miami, Panama, Dominican Republic, Paris, and Portugal. How were you able to build the necessary infrastructure to support such a rapid expansion? Um, I think that because of um, our previous experience, so the fact that um, Zven and I both come from from hospitality, we come from um, the Ritz-Carlton. I think the Ritz-Carlton kind of gave us a very good footing in what you have to do to standardize a project, to make it difficult to replicate, but to have the, 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 the secrets to be able to make sure that the taco tastes um, equally as authentic here than in Paris. Right. I mean, I think, I think that's a big hurdle a lot of times for a lot of people. As soon as you start taking, especially out of country, to kind of keep that replicated quality that you have here in those other locations. Yeah. And I think the key that we have is, is Scott there. Right. So what people don't realize, and I think people make the mistake, is they try to bring um, the same protein. What we realize is, you know, Steak is amazing here, but in the Middle East, maybe lamb is better. So what we've done with Koyo is we've stuck to the protein that works better in each country. Really? Okay. But we've taken... The chiles are very easy, you know, to take from Mexico. And and Scott goes, you know, to countries ahead of time before we open and kind of looks at the local cheese, looks at at what's there. So we source things locally that taste similar, but we... The chiles and everything we want to keep authentic, those we just bring from Mexico. But the protein is... Is the key. The protein is the key. I think people make that mistake of, you know, our steak taco is the most popular taco here in, in Wynwood. Right. Um, if we were to try to bring, you know, USDA grass-fed steak to Portugal. to Portugal, we would be losing money. So Portugal has unbelievable pork. It has unbelievable octopus. We, yeah. we kind of adapt ourselves to the, to the local spot. And that's what the locals want, you know, right. their protein. Wow. Are all of those corporately owned or are some of them franchised? Everything that we own in the U.S. is corporately owned because we can manage and operate it and we right. don't want to lose the quality. Everything that's outside of, of the U.S. is it's not, very, it's not a, la- a license. It's, it's a licensing rather than a franchise. Right. Oh, okay. All right. So, so they're under a license deal to run those certain... Correct. Cars. So okay. we, we give them the know-how. We, we help with, with the opening and we go from time to time. But, um, but essentially, it's, it's a license. So not only do you have Koyo, you have 1-800-LUCKY, which kind of came next, which is a 10,000-square-foot pan-Asian food hall with seven restaurants that you opened in 2017. It has two full bars and a karaoke lounge. How was, I mean, you're talking about Mexican food, and now all of a sudden, Asian food hall. How was, how was this born? Yeah, so what happened was we really liked Wynwood. We saw that this was our neighborhood, and it clicked. <laughs> right. And again, we started thinking, what's missing? And Sven and I both love Asian food. Um, we, we, none of us come from an Asian background. So what right. we said is, um, it all started with us wanting to do a ramen spot. We were going to do a ramen spot. And I was like, my wife doesn't like noodles. It's too right. hot in Miami. We started thinking, what if we bring multiple concepts? Right. And I think you know, um, we were Miami's first food hall. We didn't know. No, I, you actually were. You were. It was not. We didn't know the term food hall at the time. Right. That they coined that later. But we um, brought on Gabby, and what we realized is we don't know how to make Asian food. And someone, you know, my wife doesn't want ramen, but she wants sushi. Um, let's 
let's let's bring the best of each um, concept from New York, from Japan, from LA. We brought them from all over. Nikkei, exactly. which was B side, which then went to o- Itamai. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've kind of helped spring forward a lot of these people. Yes, what we also try to do is have this as an incubator. So our pitch to a lot of people are. Um, you haven't tried the Miami market. Why don't you open with us without, you know, that initial investment for, for a year or so and then, you know, build your brick and mortar after that? That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, because I've seen it, obviously, over the years, like the people that you've had in there and all of a sudden, bang, like they open their own brick and mortar. And I mean, they still, I think B-Side is still in, inside of yes. there. Yes, yes, so, they I mean, are. It's great sushi. So can you, so you got 1-800-LUCKY. You got Koyo. Can you give us a quick description on Dante's? Absolutely. So Dante's Hi-Fi, um, also here in Wynwood and also with us kind of trying to be first. Uh, this is Miami's first um, vinyl hi-fi bar. So we are, we are kind of um, in, being inspired in the Japanese um, vinyl bars and wanted to make a space where, where we, would, we would hang out, um, where DJs um, really have to you know, be familiar with analog and, 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 and the music because they have to, you know, own the vinyl. And it's, it's something that's, that's worked extremely well. A vinyl bar. I mean, that's, that's, to, that's me, to me, it's like pretty awesome. I mean, because I love vinyl and I love, I mean, the sound quality of me, the feel, the music, everything else is just so much better. Are you guys getting good reception off of Dante's? Absolutely. Um, we, we opened um, about, eight months ago and it just took off um we we try to make it very small um it has no signage it has no name um you know it's really kind of a word of mouth thing it's it's hidden you know up on fifth avenue um but the appeal of vinyl it really really is here I, I, i think it's on a massive comeback exactly so we've had um what we love is the appeal for all the djs we we get these huge djs that are playing you know in the biggest nightclubs in the world come to play because because they want to play in our sound system and um the reception has been great so we actually opened um we have a pop-up now in soho house in austin oh wow and we're working on you know three locations that i i still cannot <laughs> disclose <laughs> that's next dante's vinyl hi-fi that's gonna be awesome dude so not only that but this other massive project that you guys kind of put together oasis Yes, yeah, so Oasis, um, Sven and I are, 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 are doing the management for. Okay. Um, so what the Oasis is, is it's Miami's uh, second largest concert venue and Miami's lar- largest open-air concert venue. Really? Yes, after FTX Arena, we're the, we're the biggest. How many people do you fit inside that thing? Um, we can fit up to 4,000 people in there. Oh, wow. Well, and I know you guys have had some big-time big names up in there. Yes, it was... Um, we, 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 we've really had, you know, from Tiesto to Travis yeah. Scott um, yeah. to Bresh, um, it, we've really been able to, to kind of have a, amazing concerts in there. Not only is it a concert venue, but like there's also food locations, which I think you also have a sister now restaurant of Coyo? Yes. So, so we have a sister uh, of, of Coyo that's called Los Buenos. Uh, Los Buenos is um, exactly for a place like Oasis. Um, it's where a coil wouldn't fit because, as you said, with coil we have we have the back lounge. Right, right, we right. have we have a much more expansive um, menu. So Los Buenos is more if you're inside a concert venue, if you're in a in a in a mall, if you're in an airport. Grab a quick taco. Grab a quick taco. Exactly. Are you is that another spot you're kind of using as an incubator for people? Yes. So the Oasis. Um, what we we did is we brought the best hits of of. Um, New York, so right. we brought Prince Street Pizza, right. um, Ali Doro, which I think is the best sandwich um, out of yes. New York. Um, we also had, um, we have chicken, we have Buya. so that's similar to Lucky. The idea is for it to be an incubator space, but also I think it's an elevated concert experience. I, you know, I go to concerts a lot, and usually you end up with a hot dog, you know. <laughs> yeah, trash food. Trash food. Um, so what happens there is you're going to similar um, concert events, but you're getting really high-scale, upscale food. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, it kind of all started in Wynwood. Where do you see Wynwood in 10 years? I mean, this is like a deep question. Like, is it going to go from the grit and the grime to mainstream to touristy to dead? Or, like so many other cool neighborhoods, is it, is it going to hang around and, and, and prosper? Um, I think, unfortunately, it's out of our hands and, and on to now 
um, the developers hands. Yeah, exactly. But where do where do I wish to see it? Right. I, I wish that the developers hold um, true and and kind of don't cater to the Starbucks and Denny's of the world. Right. My dream would be for you know for similar to Brooklyn for it to have a, a kind of long lifespan. Right. Um, and as as long as we can to kind of keep it as a, as, a, as Miami's cultural hub. Right. Um, I do see the neighborhood changing. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think that that is also something natural that, that we no, just I, have to I, deal I think, with. No, I think certain things work for us, obviously, in the sense like now we have apartment buildings here. Eight years ago, there were no apartment buildings. I mean, I think you have like two right around the corner from you, and now I've got two on my street. But I also heard that they have stopped permitting more construction for new apartment buildings in, in the neighborhood, which I think is a good thing because then having retail in the lower sections of those, will it compromise and will it be like, okay, like we need to put a Starbucks in here? You know what I mean? That to me is what kind of worries me. I don't mind the apartment buildings because then it's going to bring more residents, which will venture to my spot, to Coyo, to Lucky. So, But bringing in those franchises to me would be kind of a sign of doom. It's a delicate balance, and so yeah. far the landlords have not permitted it, right. and, and we just hope that they... They kind stick of, to their guns. So kind of final question here. What would be your advice to someone who's listening to this while they're driving home from work who has a dream to start a business but is afraid to take that leap? I mean, you guys started as one spot, became very successful, and obviously blew up into this empire. I think, I think my advice would be... Um, to follow your gut, I think that unfortunately a lot of people around you, um, there, there's a lot of people around you that are maybe going to be a bit jealous about you carrying out your dream. Right. So um, there, you're going to get a lot of halts and, and opinions from people of why it's not going to work. And I would say that this is to, industry is not rocket science. Um, I think that it, 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 if you have the passion um, and you go for it, um, I think that you're likely to succeed. And my advice would be, whether it's family, whether it's friends, unfortunately, some people out there are going to try to dissuade you from doing it. The naysayers. The naysayers. And I think you need to go with your gut and take the risk. Just be open about taking the risk with whoever you're bringing on board. But my advice is, is to try it. Yeah, just take that leap of faith. I mean, obviously, have, have the passion. If you don't have the passion, don't do it. But if you have the passion, don't listen to the outside noise and push forward and, and do what you want to do. Exactly, and try it. And if it doesn't work, at least you can live knowing that you try it instead of just wondering what, what would have happened. Right, that tried. regret, like, man, I should have done that, but I never did. Exactly. Well, Alan, thank you very much for, for joining us today. This has been uh, quite a pleasure. It's good to finally sit down with you. I know it's been a while since I've seen you, but uh, it's awesome to watch your guys' success and growth over the years. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Cheers. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Ivar Aus. Peter Keek, Chris Plinkington, and Alan Drummond, our co-host Maria Cabre, our producer Rocco Riggio, and our editor Brian O'Connell. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the Sirius XM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.